from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that uses poetry and prose to take himself and his readers through the minefield of anxiety and depression. The stories are surreal and horrific but in the end are repositories for the author's despair to be trapped on the page. He's joining me today to talk about the first novel in the Northwest Trilogy entitled The Doom That Came to Astoria. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Craig Randall. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Vincent. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 29th day of July, 2023. I read your book, The Doom That Came to Astoria, after finding out that you wrote from a perspective involving the portrayal and awareness of mental health. What I found was a surreal Lovecraft-esque story that took you deep into the machinations of depression and anxiety within the minds of multiple characters. That, with the inclusion of the intrigue of a secret society looming in the background, made for a very compelling story. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So... The book is about a man named Charlie who has a very traumatic childhood related to an abusive father that, despite severe issues with anxiety and depression, is able to get through university and secure a teaching job just outside of Astoria, Oregon, in a town called Napa. However, after always being supportive of Charlie leaving home and making a life for himself, his mother becomes very upset and withdrawn and will not tell Charlie why. And despite severe misgivings himself, Charlie accepts the position, muscles through the anxiety, and heads to Astoria, which is when the drama and the trauma begin. And a large part of the story is the reader being made privy to the inner machinations of Charlie's mind as he's enduring generalized anxiety, social anxiety, and PTSD. So you mentioned in the back of the book that you have problems with anxiety and depression yourself. So how did you keep from getting triggered into a panic attack yourself <laughs> when writing these visceral descriptions of Charlie's chaotic mind? That's a really good question. I would even start by saying, you know, I experienced depression and anxiety most of my life. And then 
I take escitalopram for like anxiety and I tried to go off it and it crashed. And then the panic attacks started happening at a higher rate than I'd ever experienced. So I'd kind of like shattered for better or for worse. And it was interesting because that's actually when I started writing the book. So I was already in like the most intensive kind of experience ever, especially that first chapter. Those inner machinations are literally just me kind of writing out for myself what I was experiencing. Unmedicated. Um, yeah. Wow. And then, oh, I quickly went back on the meds because <laughs> okay. um, it just wasn't working out. And the interesting thing, though, was I started seeing a psychologist right away and I was kind of rebuilding the more positive mental pathways. But I was very conscious. I started the book, but then I felt like there was something really special about it. And there was something internally that I was like, I need to keep going. And it was something I talked to my wife about because I did heal and I came out of it. And I haven't had a panic attack in five years now, I think, since I started even writing this book. But interestingly enough, about halfway through, I was very conscious that writing the book and then the subsequent sequel probably absolutely did keep me in a darker frame of mind mm. for longer. You know, if I didn't write the book, I think I could have been free of it and gone on. But there's another side of that coin too. And I think writing the books taught me more about myself and healing because I think if I would have in hindsight, just not written the book and kind of gone on with that piece that I had found, especially not having written the whole trilogy with where, where I personally went as I wrote through Charlie's healing journey, I never would have found the piece, a deeper piece that I have now. So there was this weird tug and go by sitting in it, but in this productive way mm -hmm. through art, through the story and watching where Charlie's character would go and take me. And there's a kind of a deep, I think, truth to healing that like you got to face it, right? You got to like almost go right into it as scary as it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what writing the trilogy did. I'm just finishing up book three right now. And it's the other end of the tunnel, basically. But it definitely kept my mind in a dark place, especially going over revisions and revisions mm, and revisions God. and returning to those dark places <laughs> over Dissecting and over. Dissecting it even further. Yeah. And like revising anything, even if it's probably a really hopeful book, you're still just like, you know, as a writer, there's jokes about just be despondent. Like I've read the same chapter 30 times and edited 30 times and I don't know if it's working. Mm. And so that layer on top of it. But it definitely did, I think, keep me in a dark place. But ultimately, following through and pursuing it, I think, took me to revelations that I never would have found if I hadn't done that. So I feel like I'm getting three things from the writing of the book. There was almost like, what is that, EMDR therapy? Almost like you're doing that. You're processing the trauma through the writing. Absolutely. But you're also in a very dark place as you do it. But once it's completed, it's cathartic. Yes. Even writing Doom, which doesn't, you know, no spoilers, but it doesn't end on a triumphant note. Yeah. It was still incredibly cathartic finishing that part one. Mm. And it was able to, like, put certain aspects of my life to bed, which mm. was amazing. And it was. I mean, that's the whole thing started out. I was seeing a psychologist and he was like, well, you know, you like reading and writing. Why don't you do some writing to kind of process through these thoughts that we've been kind of talking about? And I came back a month later with chapter one of that book and 90 poems that became my first collection of poetry. And he was like, I meant like journaling. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sorry, this is just how my brain works. Uh -huh. And I just took it as kind of this 
I needed to know for myself, could somebody who felt as shattered as I do make it out? I was teaching the hero journey to my uh, eighth grade students. Joseph at time, Campbell. And it was, <laughs> yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking at that really shattered spot, I related to none of it. Mm. And I think the trilogy kind of almost was born out of that. I needed to show myself, like, I needed to ask the question, can I still be a hero if I struggle like this? Because the Joseph Campbell classic trilogy structure that we get from the Greeks, right? The mm -hmm. opening third, the hero is like showing what they could do and they reject it, right? Before they end up going. But in that first third, they go. Mm -hmm. And Charlie does go to Astoria, right? But it's his story. It's kind of undermined though, right? Mm -hmm. He's trying to toy with that ironic twist of he's not really in charge of himself going. And he doesn't have the sage exactly to go to that kind of schools him on his way. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't come till later, like way later. So part of this trilogy is me toying with what does a hero journey look like for somebody whose knee-jerk reaction is to just pull the blanket back over their head and stay in bed till nighttime. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's also challenging. How do you keep that interesting, right? <laughs> how, do you, how do you make a story compelling where the character doesn't want to do anything? Yeah. Yeah, that's an internal and external struggle. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I've only read the first book, but mm -hmm. in the story, you find out that Charlie has an abusive father. And yeah. his father has a very dark backstory himself. You know, it's not just left mm -hmm. as, oh, this guy was abusive and he's just an evil motherfucker. So the backstory is a major part of the story arc. Yep. But... Was it also meant to kind of highlight the fact that abusive fathers aren't created in a vacuum? Like, Yeah, absolutely. I love that thought and that question. I mean, ultimately, one of the big threads that goes through the entirety of the series, I think, is that it started out as that investigation. Like, I mean, ultimately, we are a byproduct of the people around us, right? Our parents but then there's this wisdom in realizing that they're also the byproduct of people that impacted them. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because like Charlie's dad did terrible things to him. There's all those imagery, especially at the beginning of like the oppressive hand and shadow that just is always over Charlie's life. But again, it was a really fun thread to see evolve throughout. I mean, me personally, like the father figures in the book, which there's multiple father figures referenced for different characters, and they're all kind of have that same vein. And then especially like even connecting it to kind of the antagonists, I think I was in a place where I was pretty shattered. You know, I had all these external forces that like shattered me. But then writing the book made me realize, oh, I let to a certain degree, I let some of that happen, like the order is a very specific group of people in my life that I kind of allowed to control me, but I wasn't really aware of it. Metaphorically? Metaphorically, yeah. Okay, so you don't have like some esoteric society coming after you? Yes, yeah, I'm not being like pursued <laughs> by some esoteric society. Exactly, yeah, uh, thank you. Good clarification. Uh, yeah, you can't, well, I think, not that you can talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, <laughs> that's why I'm going on here right now. But... I think some of the most liberated I've ever felt in my life is when I started owning my own responsibility in the control that I gave to other people, mm -hmm. whether it be you know paternal figures or actual systems around us that we're engaged in or groups of people. And I found a lot of liberation in like your question talking about, you know, 
abusive people aren't built in a vacuum. Like, mm-hmm. uh, people are people. They were kind of created that way or built that way mm-hmm. over time. I think it's that environmental piece and exploring how Charlie felt about that father figure throughout all three books or even the maternal figure, like that kind of triad relationship between a child and their parents, mm-hmm. the people that have the most influence over us. But yeah, it was a powerful experience to kind of explore and write through and, and ultimately forgive and find redemption, I think, mm-hmm. for me personally. So, Yeah. Reading the book and reading the character of Charlie, I can understand your connection to that character as far as that being a major part of you working through some things. But Trent was a character that seemed to be stuck between a rock and a hard place when it came to his life decisions. You know, very much. He didn't seem to have any sort of like behavioral psych issues or anything like that. It just no. Yeah. It just seemed like he had made some poor life decisions and was in a rock and a hard place. And so mm-hmm. doing this job was his ticket out of, I guess, what he felt was stagnation. So yeah. what was the reason for using someone with his storyline as opposed to some sort of professional thug? It seemed like the people that employed him would be wealthy enough to afford it. So like, what was Trent's purpose for the storyline, I guess, is what That's I'm That's a great question. Again... The irony of the story is that I was actually a kid who grew up in Portland and didn't grow up in like in any way, shape or form, like the abusive home that Charlie did. I had my own difficulties with my parents like anybody does. So a lot of that part was sensationalized. But I did move to Astoria out of college and I actually taught at Napa High School. So a lot of this book particularly actually does kind of stem from metaphorically stems from reality and Trent and Ellie as characters both. I taught at the Oregon coast for seven years and I loved every second of it. There was challenges. Absolutely. But there was, you know, I think big victories and successes. But one of the things that broke my heart every single year were the trends in the alleys. There were countless and countless kids that I would teach every year whose entire lives were between a rock and a hard place and who had no real path and you'd sit there and kind of try to open doors and try to inspire them and try to get them to realize there are paths that they could take it was the interesting thing about living out there as i grew up in portland i traveled around when i got married my wife and i traveled the world so we had this very different kind of perspective about how small the world is but a lot of the students i taught out of the oregon coast that county was their world and like to a lot of them nothing existed outside of it so there's been a lot of sad stories in the last decade of kids who would get out of high school and there wouldn't be jobs for them to do and there wouldn't be anything for them to do. Even out at some of the smaller schools outside of Astoria, there's an unfortunate running understanding that like, oh yeah, well that kid's probably just going to be a drug addict by 25 and in jail by this time. And it was interesting to watch a lot of adults in the communities. Like I got yelled at like once a week when I worked at Napa High School, by parents for telling their child that they could go to college or go build a life outside of Napa. Like, yeah, move here, go here, all the opportunities are there. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I'd get some parent that would come in and scream at me, we've lived here for six generations. I was like, and there's nothing to do for the last three. Mm-hmm. So I think Trent and Ellie was, in a sense, me trying to 
rationalize that. There's a conversation between Ellie and Charlie at one of the local dive bars where she's actually kind of jealous of him because he got out Mm -hmm. of his life Mm -hmm. and went to build something new. Yeah, Ellie and Trent kind of have identical... Yeah. Yeah, they even know each other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We get small towns. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) They know all the good and all the bad Mm -hmm. for better and worse and have history and and Charlie's just trying to find his way in it. But yeah, it's been interesting for people who know me. One of my favorite conversations I've had with people is some of my old students who went to Napa High School have read the book. And they were like, well, I saw myself and so many of my peers in these different roles. And I wanted it to be very authentic, but also not offensive, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. You don't want to disparage the town. Just <laughs> No. Not at all. Yeah. It actually, writing it, I'd moved away by the time I wrote it. And writing the book made me really appreciate and fall back in love with those communities. Because mm-hmm. there's so many good things to offer. It's just, there's issues too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Ellie. So Trent kind of eased his way into Charlie's sphere to kind of befriend him. Yeah. And to make him garnering a friend easy i mean he did yeah. all the the heavy lifting obviously right and so ellie comes into play and i'm thinking of like the seductive honeypot is about to happen yeah. yeah and maybe it was i don't know maybe you know without giving away any spoilers maybe a particular event prevented that right yeah so i don't know if that was the trajectory that she was going but it seemed like if it wasn't initially her aim it kind of became her aim to really be more of a friend than some sort of, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lamb yeah. tied to the stake, so to speak. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think absolutely. So, what was their employer's intent for them? Like, what were they supposed to accomplish so they could accomplish their goals? And I don't know if there's a way for you to answer that without creating. A I was just like, <laughs> I was trying to think. How do I answer feel, that without? Feel free to pass anything. if you like. But no, I think I think I could do this. <laughs> okay, let's just put it this way: the order ultimately needs Charlie, right? Mm -hmm. This secret society. They needed Charlie to be in a certain place at a certain time. And they sent people who would basically, and this is a very manipulative tactic, I think, that certain groups of people do use on a regular basis. You send somebody something that like accomplishes their emotional need, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, both of those characters are fulfilling exactly what charlie wants when he moves out there Uh, which makes it all the more heartbreaking right mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about writing the book for me is i set out writing a book about anxiety and depression and what i ended up learning was the end of the book was the event was supposed to be similar but how it triggered and how the event came to be was a complete surprise and kind of rewrite on the fly and in the rewriting process because i did not realize i think how integral anger is with anxiety and depression and how much bitterness is actually at the root of all of that. And what I kind of started to realize about myself even was how much anger I'd been carrying around my whole life. Because I think if you experience trauma, I don't know how realistic this is. I talked to a therapist about it once and they're like, that actually sounds pretty common and legit. I was like, oh, it's almost like you're on the spectrum of life, but then as soon as you experience the severe trauma, it's like you leave that spectrum of like where you should be living or could mm-hmm. be living. 
I spent most of my years oscillating between really angry or incredibly despairing, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we as humans need to be autonomous. We need to be like the agents of our own story to really be living. And on that spectrum, the only way you can be an agent is through anger. Because if you're despairing, your agency goes away, right? So it was really interesting writing the story kind of brought about this revelation that like, oh, the only way to actually trigger Charlie into doing something by the end of the Mm -hmm. book was by fueling that anger. Mm. I'd moved away again from Astoria well before I wrote the book. And anybody that knows me knows it's not actually that big of a secret that I was actually pretty destroyed when I left. Like at that Mm -hmm. time of my own journey, I'd went there with the hope of like healing a lot of things. And a lot of the things I went to heal ended up just getting a hammer taken to them. Mm. It was really interesting. So when Doom comes to Astoria fictionally, it was this huge revelation to me of like, oh my gosh, if I don't check my own anger that I have towards X, Y, and Z or this person or that person, I'm going to destroy my life. Mm. It was really interesting. It was interesting writing side characters. It was the first time I'd ever tried to write something that big too. So like even getting back to your question about Trent and Ellie, it was interesting balancing their own need to be autonomous characters and like Mm -hmm. what their stories were ellie's my heart and soul i love her so much because i have students that she embodies Mm -hmm. and i've seen some of them come out of that life and i've seen some of them do really incredible things but i see others that are still trapped there but ellie in the story her kind of fate and arc i still struggle when i look back on it because i'm like man is that just like plot utility i mean to a certain degree she is a side character but falls for that trap of um, that male lead almost needing to be where he goes. I don't know. It almost seemed mm-hmm. too realistic, unfortunately, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's probably actually the background reason. In the books two and three, there's this other female lead who's probably my own subconscious response to Ellie, because Ellie mm-hmm. breaks my heart. But I love her. Yeah. Well, kind of piggybacking off what you just said, but then maybe introducing another question in the mix. Yeah. Am I getting, I guess, what's the general thing that I'm getting as far as did the chicken or the egg come first? Is Mm. the root of fear anger or is the root of anger fear? Oh, that's a good question. And in the story, Ellie tells Charlie that he says he's sorry too much. Yeah. And I know that's a common manifestation of social anxiety. Yeah. So with regard to the chicken or the egg question, do you think that anxiety has separate causes? Like, can social anxiety exist in a vacuum or is it always Mm. the result of learned low self-esteem from, you know, emotional or physical abuse? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's complex. Even sidestepping the idea of it being in a vacuum. And I think this is where mental health makes people uncomfortable because it's not like you break an arm, right? Mm. And you know why you hit it on something or something cracked it. There's a lot of things that I think can crack us that we don't Mm. see, right? And I think some people are born with something chemically and from the get-go is just a little off or whatever. But from my own personal experience and from the many people I've spoken to, I think a lot of people can point to an event, right? Mm-hmm. or a series of events or you know some sort of traumatic event but at the same time i think you know social anxiety people who've grown up in very loving homes right can mm-hmm. just be a little bit fearful of like other people outside of their family 
I think we're going to see an influx of social anxiety in the upcoming generation because of COVID, right? Because yeah. there for a was while kids. there, what we're doing now was about as social as people got. Exactly, <laughs> right? Computer. And I, you know, I have friends whose children were born in COVID and they were like, they didn't see another baby for a year and a half. Like, mm. it's interesting. I just read this really great book called The Highly Sensitive Person. Mm. They kind of revolutionized how I think about everything in terms of myself because I think we all have a different level of sensitivity. At least that's the mm. premise of the book. And I'm a really highly sensitive person. So I notice, I feel a lot, mm. but then other people are not. So like I learned through reading this book and had conversations with my parents and family members and in-laws and my wife. And I grew up a highly sensitive person who perceived the world in very specific ways. And then my two siblings and my parents are not highly sensitive doesn't mean they don't have sensitivity, but they're just, they feel and experience the world in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Automatically, that puts me as an outsider. Mm -hmm. And then in that, like experience after experience, environmental cues, you know, even like going through school, I would have a different reaction than the average kid to certain situations. But then teachers would expect you to act like everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And do what's normal. But I think, you know, someone could be socially anxious. I think I've always had that components here and there, I learned to fake it, which can actually be really dangerous, right? Because I ended up learning to fake that I was okay in the majority of situations my whole life. But then as soon as I would go behind closed doors, I would internally just combust and spin out. But then on top of that, there were certain events that I could point to that were super traumatic. And unless you learn to engage in and face those events in safe ways, you don't get over them, right? The average person actually doesn't face things that happen to them. And I think that's what the books ultimately are really about, is Charlie learning to confront the things that happened to him and to see if he can put it to bed and move on. And if you look at them with like Trent and Ellie, like they had things happen to them too. But in their context, they don't have the resources or the time or the ability to deal with it, which I think one of my hopes with Trent and Charlie was to show the effects of poverty. You know, wealthy people and impoverished people, they deal with anxieties and depressions, and we all go through things that are traumatic. There's an interesting theme throughout all three books about marginalized people groups. It ends up coming up in all three books, which wasn't consciously planned. It just happened. Uh, I noticed that when I was writing the third one. And I think that's one of the things about like Trent and Ellie and their own traumas. When I went back and rewrite, so I almost tried to mirror certain aspects of Charlie, Trent, and Ellie, like their past that kind of connected them. But you see, like Charlie's at least to a certain degree had abilities to tackle some of it, right? But not mm -hmm. really come to any conclusions. In the beginning of book one, he feels like he's healed and moved on and ready to go. Mm -hmm. But he actually hasn't. And then that comes back to bite him which is really what book two is all about. It's like, okay, he's now shattered again. What's he going to do about it? Going back to the vacuum, though, I think it's been really interesting the last couple of years talking to a lot of people, especially now that the books are kind of out and about and I do these poetry readings and I'm, I'll go do book signings and I get to I get to talk to a lot of people about mental health struggles. And it's an incredible privilege, I think. It's been really interesting. I've heard more stories from more people's experiences than ever before. And they're all so different. Like some people are like, oh yeah, I've never been like abused or verbally, physically, like that they're aware of. But there's these like social anxieties that pop up, you know. But then there's other people who have experienced horrendous trauma. And it's just an interesting thing. 
And it, I think it's something that every human has to kind of learn to engage with as they feel ready, if it feels safe, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the big encouragement that I kind of keep coming back to whenever I talk to people, especially when I talk to people, because I'm not a therapist. I can't tell people what to do. I don't want to diagnose anybody, but I think there's a safe assumption in saying, like, if you're a human being, you probably experienced something traumatic, and there's probably something that you could learn to face to get over to become that best version of yourself. And I think that's a universal thing. And I mean, that's one of the things I hope to be able to convey when I talk to people. So. Well, one of the events in the story kind of made me think about some things that have happened to me Yeah, that I like to refer to as, I guess if there's more than one, I guess you can't really call it a singularity. But when I come across them, I'll call them a singularity because like I'm in recovery. So, you know, there's the old saying, if you want to find out why you drink, stop drinking. Like, holy shit, this is why I drink. Okay. So... That's interesting. I never heard it put that way. Yeah. So That's uh, interesting though. There's all sorts of false beliefs that you kind of have to retrain your brain to not accept. And Charlie in the story has extreme difficulty trusting people. So a large part of the story was him trying to break down the wall he puts up. But eventually it becomes clear that that was a bad idea. Yeah. Now, when something like that happens, it's hard not to say, see, I was right. The therapist right. or this person was wrong. The world really is out to get me. So right. have you ever had to work on disregarding false beliefs that turned out in a very rare case, which I like to refer to as a singularity, to be true? And if so, how did you deal with that? Great question. I actually battled internally a lot with that aspect of the book because I didn't want to give even fictionally people an argument to say, see, look, I shouldn't have tried Mm -hmm. because this happened. And I think the way that the whole story works out by the end, it balances that. But in book one, especially with Charlie, so much of it is him pushing himself to try, right? Which is, I think, noble and I think important. And I think the short answer of your question is, I think I've spent the better part of the last five years unlearning things I thought were true and trying to thread through into my thought process things that I think to be true now, you know, but I think there's a reality that if we're trying to overcome something, we're going to have to tackle those truths and lies. Sometimes I'll say something out loud. Hey, I'm thinking this again Mm -hmm. to my wife. And as soon as I say it out loud, I can see how ridiculous it is and how that's not actually reflective of me or the situation. It's how my insecurity has learned to frame the situation over 30 years. And I think most people would be surprised if they took a step back and unraveled what they think and why they think it. I think a lot of people would be astounded to realize, well, I've spent most of my life believing things that aren't true. I think it's scarier to unravel that for a lot of people. So they don't. I was talking to a friend yesterday who one of the most brilliant human beings I know and every single thing they've ever really put their hands toward has succeeded. And they're doing something new and are perpetually catastrophizing how everything's about to fall apart and how it's probably not going to work. And I was challenging them yesterday. It's like, are you just telling yourself that to soften the blow if it doesn't? And he goes, no, no, I just, I don't think things work out for me. And I'm like, why? I'm looking at his life thinking like, (laughs) you're, what are you talking about? (laughs) He sees himself in this complete false shroud 
that is not reflective of how anybody else on the planet sees him. And it's just really interesting. And I think I lived a lot of my life that way too. I just had my 20th high school reunion and it was interesting because I tend to lean towards feeling a little bit shameful for who I was at the last two years of high school. And I think I've spent way too many years beating myself about choices I made, decisions I made. And hindsight, it's like you're 17, you're supposed to be an idiot. But it's really interesting <laughs> going to a 20th year reunion and like hearing stories and hearing other people talk about you, like to my wife, you know, like, oh, this guy and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, whoa, most of these people actually thought very highly of me. That was pretty shocking. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just interesting. Uh-huh. I think that idea of what's true and real. It's a big part of the book because I think it's a big part of mental health recovery. I think when we're in dark places, we don't see clearly, right? And I can imagine the friend I was talking about had some pretty heavy substance abuse issues as well. So it's interesting. We talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I had substance abuse issues back in the day. And I think I had like labeled myself an alcoholic. But it was interesting as I've gotten older, I had some severe mental health issues because I'd never kind of had any uh, lines in the sand of what thoughts I should allow into my head versus not. Mm-hmm. And then alcohol became a way of like numbing it, right? Which is pretty common. medicating Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I talked to him and another friend or a couple of people that I knew that got into some pretty severe drug addiction and hearing them talk to each other. It, it's been really interesting to like compare my own experiences and be like, Oh, okay. There's some different subtleties. And I try to ask a challenging question to them about like, you know, I've read a lot of books on like neuroplasticity in the brain and seen psychologists and talked about rewiring neurons, right? And I spent 30 years thinking one way. Mm-hmm. But according to neuroscience, if you can get yourself not to have a thought, you know, which is hard, it's not by not thinking, it's about thinking something different. So if mm-hmm. I can train myself to think this way, because I think it's true, eventually these neurons will fade and we will stop having those thoughts. Like somebody won the Nobel Prize figuring that out. And then whenever I'm with these buddies, I'm always like, what does that look like with addiction? Like, how does that play? I don't know. Maybe there's some PhD studies there that somebody else can do. You know, the best analogy I've ever heard for what you just (laughs) said is uh, if you think about like a small waterfall or a tributary, Mm -hmm. when, when water runs over rock in the same place for years and years upon end, it carves a path Yeah, that it then continues to follow. Absolutely. But if you can reroute the water, it will carve the same channel as far as neuroplasticity. and Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's a great image of it. Yeah. It's concrete. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally. Exactly. <laughs> it's rock. Right? I guess yeah. not concrete, but it's rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what like I had just gone through when I was in mental recovery. Like I'd written all this poetry and like the first collection of poetry is called To Chase the Sun. I was trying to find hope again because I had experienced it. But then when it went away very quickly and severely, I did have the luxury of of having experienced it before and very recently. So I kind of fought very hard. Okay, I can get it back. If it was there once, I can get back to it. And that was kind of even the background of, of Charlie's journey. Charlie's journey was like, okay, how can I build this pathway so I can recover? But then investigating other things along the way, the poetry actually kind of almost weaves in and out of Charlie's story. And I've told a couple of people before that like, by the end of book three, Charlie wants to be the guy who's writing the poetry, if that makes sense. And can look back from a more hopeful point of view and think, I made it. Mm. Holy smokes, through unforeseeable odds, impossible odds, but I made it. So in the previous question with regard to 
you know, sometimes you'll hit those landmines that you kind of have to repair yourself. You can't believe, oh, the whole world is full of landmines. I just happened to step on one. Yeah. So sometimes it requires, at least to me, it seems like sometimes you just have to kick your own ass every once in a while. I would and agree. <laughs> like, like I used to go to this support group with a group of guys. Yeah. And we were all stuck in a rut. We all would do the same dumb shit over and over. We'd meet up, say that we did it, and nobody would like light a fire under each other's ass and hold them accountable. You know, we would just, you know, metaphorically stroke each other's head and say it's going to be all right, progress, not perfection, and so on. Yeah. Well, you were so, empathizing with each other's shame to a certain degree, right? Yeah. Yeah. So oh, good. They feel terrible too. <laughs> So there's a lot of instances where in uh, the book where Charlie is giving himself what I would describe as somewhat firm admonitions to yeah. trust people as well as other things like taking the leap for the teaching job and mm -hmm. hanging out with people in a bar because that's what, quote, normal people do. So yeah. as I was describing, have you ever had to give yourself a somewhat similar dose of tough love when it came to overcoming an obstacle related to your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the reasons I've been able to find recovery in it is that tenacity. Some of it to a destructive place, right? Just like Charlie. I think mm -hmm. if I break my life into segments based on like what I knew at the time, like from teenage years, when I think I started to acknowledge that I felt off or different or broken or uh, which I hate the term broken anymore. Too many people apply the term to themselves broken with the assumption that nothing can be fixed. So this is just me. That's how I used to think. And because of that, for years, I just spent, okay, I feel this way. I've always felt this way. Therefore, I'm always going to feel this way. But I still wanted to build a life like I saw other people having. I still wanted to, you know, have a family. I still wanted to have a career. So like accepting jobs, going to college, I think I trained myself in my youth to completely kick myself and work tremendously probably harder than most people because of what i was internally fighting against to try to build the same life i remember all through high school and college just being terrified of my own shadow almost every second of every day and maybe it was that painful desire to feel normal or that you know unfortunate comparative like other people are doing this so i should do this and in a certain sense forced myself through the pain which is interesting because in hindsight, it's actually kind of destructive, right? Mm -hmm. What I should have done, as I realize now, is actually stop, pull myself outside of the lane, go get professional help. You know what I mean? Reset the clock and then go not the path that everybody else was, but the path that was that made sense for me. But again, I feel like I know a lot more about myself in the situation now. And even my move to Astoria was like, okay, I can't find a job anywhere else. My wife and I graduated from college in 2009 when the, when the economy collapsed. Couldn't find a job anywhere in my hometown. But I was offered a job out in Napa. And it was like, okay, I don't want a new experience. I don't want blah, blah, blah. But I got to go build a life. So I pushed myself to go. And yeah. I pushed myself to do all of these things. I think that's why I shattered in Astoria when I left. I was pushing myself and kind of kicking my own ass to do X, Y, and Z because that's what I thought I had to do to build a life. And then once I left and just shattered completely, it really wasn't until three years later 
I read a few books and I kind of learned a new set of knowledge and kind of started tackling what we were talking about earlier, like the lies mm-hmm. like, or the, you know, seeing like, oh, what I thought for years wasn't true. Holy smokes. This is actually closer to truth. And when I started, you know, pursuing that new knowledge, I thought I was pursuing healing the whole time. Mm-hmm. But when I look back, I really wasn't. And probably for the better part of the last five years, which is where the writing all kind of stemmed out of that. Like when I started finding what I thought was like really true about the recovery process, really true about myself, really true about what does healing actually look like. So I spent a lot of my life kicking myself in the ass to go do X, Y, and Z. And it's that hard, just like the book, though, right? It's almost hard for me to admit, like, was that wrong? Not necessarily. Was it always mm-hmm. right? Definitely not necessarily. Um, I think there's a definite part of whether it's, I mean, I guess you could say alcoholism is mental health. Yeah. There's a proper point where it's easy does it, you know, like yeah. just go easy on yourself type of thing. Yeah. But when you, like in my case, when you've been sober for five years, and you're sober, but your life is chaos. <laughs> you may yeah. need to kick yourself in the ass to fix what's wrong with you instead of just remaining in boot camp. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You know, boot camp was years ago. Why are you still in boot camp? You should right. be working on yourself. You know, that's a good point. And maybe that what you just said is kind of the line in the sand there of like, you know, what are you kicking you in the ass for? What is your goal? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I was not necessarily kicking myself in the ass to go heal. I was kicking myself in the ass to go build the life I thought I should be living. Yeah. Which was far from the, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, there's that distinction in how you put it. Like, we almost feel like, okay, I'm just sitting here. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing this. Yeah. Listeners at home, he's making a circular motion. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that makes more sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing. Well, I lived in the Netherlands for a few years and I got this wonderful psychologist there that I was meeting with. He was always really funny because, you know, I talk too much and I'm a talker and I could sit there and just talk about things for days. And what I liked about him, though, he was very no nonsense. And we would sit there and start our conversations and he would go, Craig, you're doing it again. You've got the pot. You're stirring the pile of shit in the pot. Mm-hmm. You're still just stirring the shit. What are you going to do about the shit, Craig? And I'd yeah. be like, oh, right. So I think I spent 20 years. I could have told you 20 years ago what my singularities were those moments, right? I could have told you where the cracks happened. I could have told you all of that. But it wasn't until I started actually facing it, pushing into it and through it and dealing with it and deciding what I was going to do about it took action basically right mm-hmm. that's when the shift came that's when i left boot camp basically right it's like okay i spent 20 years in boot camp it's time to go <laughs> let's <laughs> yeah. do something yeah which is again it all goes back to that autonomy piece am i an agent to my own story or am i not mm-hmm. it's the driving force of i mean that's why the literature nerd in me started out every single of charlie's books with the hamlet quote at the beginning and end because that's the driving force of Hamlet, like the most famous play ever written, was, mm-hmm. you know, it's that classic to be or not to be. It's not just about death. Like, am I alive? And if I'm alive, am I actually going to act or not? And there's an argument that if I'm not acting out, if I'm not pushing forward in my own life, I'm not really living, mm-hmm. which I think even your story speaks to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as long as I'm sitting here circling in boot camp, it felt chaos. I wasn't really living yet. And I think writing Charlie's story helped me define that line. The irony of that is some of the criticisms the book gets is 
the people who don't like the book really don't like that a lot of it takes place in Charlie's head, or they don't like Charlie's lack of agency, which is a criticism I 100% understand, but was done with great intention, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't know how the trilogy progresses, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine that him not having any agency is temporary if he's going to follow the hero's journey. Yeah. It just happens to be concentrated on this book because it's book one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, That's the other thing. Yeah, like this is the first arc, mm-hmm. right, of the whole thing. So yeah. it comes later. There's lots more to his story. Yeah, if he grows wings, you can be getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> and I don't think that would be authentic to yeah. the story of someone in recovery of something. Mm-hmm. And That's one of the reasons I wanted it out there is because I think there's a lot of people. I had students. They were like, I don't relate to this. And you're like, oh, that's right. Where's your story? Where's my story? And I think, unfortunately, there's far too many people out there that relate to that anymore, which is what Mm -hmm. breaks my heart. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of contrary to what we've been talking about as far as the slow educational variety of recovery, of Mm -hmm. realization of false beliefs, like what is the FEAR acronym, false events appearing real? Yeah. The experience at the bluffs seemed to be an extremely cathartic experience for Charlie. And it reminded me of a story. Do you know who Paul Stamets is? I know the name. He's a mycologist that studies the effects of psilocybin on mental health. Oh, that's why. Yeah. He studies it, period. But that's one of his kind of niche things is he studies it on depression and so on. And I was watching him on Rogan's podcast. And Mm -hmm. apparently he used to have a bad stuttering problem. So one day he told Rogan how many ounces and Rogan being, you know, the connoisseur just blew his mind. You took how much? You know, (laughs) apparently it was a fuck ton. So (laughs) he took all these mushrooms and climbed the biggest hill that was near him in Ohio. And then once on the hill, climbed the tallest tree he could find. And as he did that, a really bad thunderstorm came in and it became very apparent to him that, you know, he's high on a hill, high on a tree. He could get struck by lightning. Yeah. So so he decided, well, you know, if I'm near death, I'm going to take this moment to maybe have a spiritual experience. And of course, he's hallucinating. He describes all the stuff he was seeing. It just sounded just multiple fractals emanating out of the sky. Like he's communicating with complex geometric patterns made of love (laughs) and understanding. Understanding the fabric of everything. So he said, he just started screaming at the top of his lungs, stop stuttering now, stop stuttering now, just over and over until the storm passed. And he said when he woke up the next morning, he came across a very attractive woman that lived near him, walking her dog, and he hated talking to her because he couldn't make eye contact because he starts stuttering real bad. And he said he just started talking to her, and, and like since then he hasn't stuttered. Whoa. So do you believe and or know anybody that has used psychedelics in the context of psychological treatment and had just this radical like Moses on the burning bush experience where it just snapped them out of something? Absolutely. Nobody in America. I think we're a thousand years behind the times of medical breakthroughs like that. I've contemplated it before myself. But I had, when we lived in Amsterdam, my wife and I got to live in Amsterdam for four years and taught at an international school, which was a really cool experience. 
it was also interesting too because our kids went to that school and then you know their friends all went to that school but we couldn't afford to send our kids to that school if we weren't the teachers <laughs> so in a sense all of our friends became their friends parents so it was really interesting for four years my wife and i are fish out of water these people with like in a tax bracket that i'll never ever dream of <laughs> and weird stories funny stories great stories all around there. But there was a couple of those guys, though, that I got to know when Doom came out, one of them read it and they opened up about like one of them, he grew up in, you know, in the, in the meaner streets of London and, and super abusive, like went through hell, just went through hell, might as well have been orphaned, like went through stories that I'm like, holy smokes, how are you still alive and able to sit here and like smile and laugh with me? It was just crazy. And he on several times has actually like gone down to South America and like, you know, hiked up these mountains with these like ayahuasca. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And like these like native priests and like done these trippy mushroom rituals with them. And I mean, they keep you in this hut. It's all kind of very delineated and there's these ritual patterns you follow. And he's like, I've done that like six times. And every time I come back from it, I'm like, I'm free of more of it. He's on this interesting parallel journey with me. We would always get together. We'd, we started going to movies and just grabbing coffee together and just talk about the healing journey. And his journey was so interesting. But he introduced me to a couple other people, even when we were there, that had all kind of, oh, yeah, we've all you know paid the money and gone here and spent a month in this like commune in the middle of the mountainside in the middle of nowhere in South America. And I'm like, what? Mm. <laughs> I want to do that. Do you have this money? No. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but but if you want to front it. <laughs> yeah. And I'd always heard about it, you know, and it, it made sense. The cynical person in me is like, oh, you know, the FDA in America just hasn't found a way to make money off it yet. So that's why we don't have it. Or, you know, and then the, you say cynical, I say, uh, <laughs> I think there's more truth to my cynicism. And it goes back to that truth, you know, the truth meter, right? Like mm -hmm. it is frustrating. There's so many things that are so beneficial to people in this country that we don't have every year. I feel like we become closer and closer to a third world country compared to what the rest of the Western world has. So, but, uh, yeah. And there's a great documentary on it, just mushrooms in general. And they go in for like 40 minutes. That's the part I've watched about this. But it was interesting to kind of dig into it a little bit more. And, and even as you were telling the story of that doctor, like, I mean, ultimately, if the mind and the brain and the neurons are plastic, like mm. chemically, what that does is everything gets rigid. But when that substance enters the brain, it loosens. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't surprise me at all if that guy stood out there screaming for his stutter to go away. He's creating a new pathway. In the yeah. softer neurons. Uh -huh. And then it just ingrains, ingrains. I do an exercise every night before I go to bed where I choose a context in my life. And it's basically visualization where I choose a context that would see something going better or going well. And then I imagine myself walking through that scenario and, and list off 20 things I see myself doing, 20 things I hear myself saying, 20 things I feel myself feeling. And then 10 things that I smell and then five things that I taste within that scenario. And you're basically creating memories. The mind can't differentiate between a thought and a memory physiologically. So you basically are rewiring your brain to think a different way. What I love is the whole point of the activity is it has to be things you're doing, things you're saying, because it makes you the agent of the story, of your own story. I mean, what do most of us do before we go to bed? We think about 
all the things that have happened, the things that we should have done, the things that we yeah. could have said. <laughs> Every single time you think about something that could have happened, you're tricking yourself into believing that it did or that it's real, mm. which is really destructive, actually. Yeah. Well, so aside from the mental health elements of the book, there's a very rich story that involves the duality of life and the two elements of creation and destruction, mm. which I guess... I guess I would liken to like the mutation and natural selection of evolution. Yeah. And when Nietzsche proclaimed God is dead, he was talking about the belief in God dying as we discovered more about the world through scientific discovery, mm -hmm. as well as, well, I don't know how bad it was in his time, but uh, he was a bit of a visionary. So I imagine he could probably kind of prophetically envision how modernity would give way to the creature comforts and humanity mm -hmm. because they no longer felt they needed to rely on God, just kind of devolve into this narcissistic consumerism. Mm -hmm. So would you say that downward trajectory and by the way mm -hmm. when i say belief in god i don't mean like adherence to some religion i just mean yeah. like you know so when i think there's a good distinction to be made about like people adhering to religion versus people having a faith in god yeah so do you think that downward trajectory has increased the prevalence of mental health issues or do you think we're just as problematic as we were back then i think i choose to buy into the fact that society has always been problematic. You know, mm -hmm. one of the Greek philosophers that I remember a, a, a college professor told me, I had it up in my wall in my classroom for a while, like 5,000 years ago, the adult generation, you know, was continuously land blasting the youth. You know, mm. we're still doing it today. You're going to land blast <laughs> These tomorrow's goddamn youth. kids. Are... <laughs> yeah. Like there's always going to be somebody complaining about rock and roll music. Or, or to I'm that. doing the same thing. I bitch about AI. I, I told myself I'm going to stop bitching about AI on every podcast episode. <laughs> but it's kind of freaky, though. Maybe. <laughs> I don't right, know. Let's I bitch, bitch about AI. <laughs> let's bitch about AI. Absolutely. Shift gears. It's weird. It's It's strange and it's terrifying and it's. The stuff that's going on even with the actors and the writers' strike mm -hmm. is, I think, illuminating in a totally different way. And like my, even my own heart, like I want to get audiobooks of my books out there, and it shatters me that I've even considered it. But like, you know, it's fifteen hundred bucks a book about to get a good person to read it, or fifty bucks to have AI do it. Yeah, and probably in male or female, probably in whatever accent you want, you know, I'm sure it's fucking amazing. And it's like, what breaks my heart is like, that somewhere in my gut, I consider it because I'm just this lowly indie author that doesn't have the resources <laughs> the Penguin Random House does yeah. to, to pay someone. But yeah, but I do think that there is something happening right now. I read a book a few years ago. What was it called? It was about like the, the quickening spiral of technology, right? Mm -hmm. And it kind of leads me to believe like as far as that downward spiral goes, like I see it more as like a, it's just a continuous spiral. I mean, you can make the argument that the world's been spinning out of control since the dawn of time. You know, I think humans are definitely speeding things up. I think a lot of the anxiousness, the depression, the things that have skyrocketed, I think it more has to do with technology is changing at such a fast rate anymore. We can't keep up. Mm -hmm. And without even thinking, we dive into the next thing. Mm -hmm. And writing the books helped me a lot because what it comes down with for me is connection. 
when we're anxious and depressed, I think our knee-jerk reaction is to pull away. Book one, the big truth that kind of was revealed to me was like, oh, anger is the real culpable force in this. And if I don't deal with that, I'm going to destroy myself and everybody around me. That was kind of like what Doom taught me. The Dreams in the Pearl House, the sequel, led me to a very different conclusion. I was trying to think how Charlie moves forward. And, you know, he's shattered after the events of book one. So he's just kind of spiraling. And I wrote like the first 60 pages of the book. And I'm like, this is boring. There's nothing happening because he couldn't do anything. So out of like need, this other character came. The other female character I was telling you about, and she's a huge badass. She actually, if, if Charlie's me, this other character is probably my wife. And it was really interesting to watch. As soon as she entered the scene, I ended up starting the book with her, actually, and then weaving to Charlie. And when their stories start interlining and like come together, that's actually when Charlie naturally started to kind of wake back up. And by the time I got to the end of that book, it kind of ends with Charlie kind of finally standing on two feet. And then choosing to go forward and kind of become the autonomous person. So it's like what would normally happen in the first third of the first book or of a, you know, of a trilogy doesn't happen for Charlie until the end of like book two. But it dawned on me as I wrote that book, like my big takeaway was you can't heal in a vacuum. It's not possible. We cannot heal alone. We can't heal by ourselves. We can only heal if we're interacting with the people that hurt us or are there for us to help. You know what I mean? We have to have community. We have to have other people. Mm. And I think when I look around our current world, myself included in my lowest parts in places, I think we have a lot of people who are really disconnected from anything. We don't have to be connected to the same things, right? I talk to a lot of people. I like book things. And when I'm just out and about and like a lot of people don't feel connected to anything or to each other you know, the political divide of the last five years has just put a giant wall up. And people that might have been in community before aren't anymore. I know for sure, like there's people that I used to live life with in Astoria. They won't speak to me because of like Martin Luther King posts that I posted on social media in 2015, <laughs> which is weird. I never once said anything directly about politics or any of the candidates. I just posted like famous people's words and like challenged everybody to think. Uh, and then people made assumptions on who I was talking about. Uh, and then a uh, hundred people unfriended me on social media. It was weird. Interesting. Yeah. It was especially strange because we lived in the Netherlands and then just moved back like a year and a half ago. And even the difference of communities is interesting. Whereas growing up in like the Portland area, all around Oregon, I went on a run last week. I saw 20 people on my run. Every single one of them looked away when I got close to them. Nobody looked up and smiled or acknowledged or engaged. That's what I'm used to with Oregon. That's what Oregon was like when I left. Mm. It's been really interesting to watch that shift versus growing up. I had friends from the East Coast that we'd go downtown Portland in high school or college and then be like, what are you doing? You don't know that guy. I was like, yeah, we're just walking on the sidewalk. You just said hi. You looked at each mm -hmm. other, wave. Yeah. There was this connective tissue. You know, there's a lot of talk out there. Social media is doing that, right? It's isolating people, mm -hmm. technology in general. You get a kick out of this. When I first started teaching in Napa, I would ask kids like, hey, what do you do on the weekends? Like, I'm new here. I don't really know where to go. You know, what do people do in that story? What are the things that I should go out and see? And like the average high school guy would be like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what do you do? And he goes, 
sit in my basement and play uh netflix and chill (laughs) yeah it was always it was always sit in my basement and play call of duty and then i'm like okay well what about you i sit in my basement and play call of duty and i'm like talk to each other on headsets as we both yeah that's what i came to because i was like why don't you go to each other's house and play call of duty why i'm talking to him on my headset right yeah yeah, yeah. i'm like oh that's interesting yeah i think there's a disconnection that a lot of people feel like my wife and i've been very intentional when we moved back to intentionally build that connection it's very nuanced because technology can bring people together. I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you. Right. What was it? Two podcasts ago, I was simultaneously talking with Jeff Oliver in New York and Dan Verkis in Australia. Yeah, that's it was amazing. the next fucking day in Australia. And I'm having a yeah. conversation with these guys. So tech can bring people together as well. Absolutely. I'm not completely shitting on tech. I love podcasting and all that, but totally. I think we need it. Absolutely. But it's just interesting, the byproduct. It's like a black mirror thing, you know? (laughs) It's like, Mm -hmm. there's there's this benefit that's great, but then like this weird, wacky, untoward thing that happens as a side effect that's just terrifying. Yeah. If it's not kept in check, like just like anything else, right? If it's not kept in check, it can take over. Even I've had ups and downs, like putting putting books out and being present on social media. It's not good for the mental health. (laughs) Yeah. In any way, shape, or form. And it's yeah, been an yeah. interesting battle the whole way, too. I think uh, post and ghost is the best way to deal with that. <laughs> right? And it's and this is irony of, like, when I just set up a schedule and post and then, like, ignore it. And then I'll go on for, like, 20 minutes later and check and, like, respond to things. Which, in my mind, as I'm interacting with humans, like, it feels so inauthentic. But yeah. it's the only way to, like, not get sucked in. I don't know. It's just interesting. Post and ghost. I like that. <laughs> Let's drop gears a little bit and just talk about writing in general. Mm-hmm. What was the first novel you read and what feelings did the writing, not the story, evoke in you? And what I mean by that is what feelings were evoked in you when you first cracked open a novel and were like, holy shit, I didn't know people oh. could do this with words like this. Yeah. Is, how do they keep track of all this information? How do they put this vivid scene in my head? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The only things that I read growing up were like Star Wars fan fiction. Or like, I guess it's not fan fiction. It's just kind of now. It's all been not canonized. But I never paid attention to the writing of those. I did that so I could like replicate the awe you would get when you watch one of the movies, right? Hmm. When it was only the original trilogy. But the first book I ever read where I understood what a novel could be was The Grapes of Wrath. Hmm. My junior year of high school. I never actually read a book for school before that. (laughs) I just always, you know, would talk to people or somehow did well in all the quizzes. I got away with not reading anything in class through middle school, most of high school. But then there was something about, actually, it was a book before that that I read because we read some of it in class. And I was like, well, that was really good. I really appreciated that. But when we got to the Grapes of Wrath, it was like this beast spring of my junior year. I loved the teacher. I remember telling myself, I'm going to commit to this and like read everything. I'm going to read every word that's assigned. I'm just going to kind of buy in. And I started to notice the nuances of what he was doing chapter to chapter. And I didn't have words for it yet, but I could like see like, oh my gosh, he did that. Because now when I read this, I was ready to kind of Mm -hmm. understand it. And I remember distinctly, we got to the chapter later in the book where 
the title is mentioned, like these are the grapes of wrath or blah, blah, blah. And I remember like sitting there on my bed the night before our class discussion, reading them like, oh, it's the title. Cool. Not Mike thinking anything drop. of it. <laughs> yeah. Or there's that great Leonardo DiCaprio meme from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when he's like drinking the beer late at night. Uh-huh. And it says that, that whenever the title is read in the book and it's Leonardo DiCaprio pointing. I <laughs> <laughs> um, always love it. But I thought you were talking about that one from Django where he's like, he got that glass of liquor and he's looking. <laughs> oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah. There's another great one of him as a child mm-hmm. from like Growing Pains or whatever. He's this black and white picture of him making the exact same face as a kid. Oh, shit. And it said, remember when your mom said, you keep making that face, it'll stick. And then it has both pictures <laughs> together. Great. It was really great. But uh, point is, we were in class the next day. And the teacher brought up like, hey, the title was mentioned. Can we start unpacking what that might look like and why, you know, what's the imagery there and what's going on? And then it occurred to me like that's something you could actually do and dissect. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it could mean something, right? The 17-year-old me, I was listening to this girl talk and then listening to my buddy talk. And then the teacher's like, yeah, you're close, but it's not quite it. And then it was like the stars aligned and every single thing that John Steinbeck did in that book lined up. And I just remember standing up and I didn't even raise my hand, but my teacher saw me like my eyes go wide and she goes, Craig, you got something for us? <laughs> and like, I didn't even look up. I was just processing out loud to myself. And I was like, well, and this happened and this happened and then this and this and this and this and this. And then these things happened. And then the politics were doing this and, and the grapes of wrath are really blah, blah, blah. And it just like, it just kind of flowed out. And then she saw that I probably had more to offer than I knew I had at the beginning of the year and it was almost like a payoff moment for her i've spoken to her about it since then and she's laughs <laughs> but it was just this moment of like i didn't know what books could be <laughs> i just thought they were like entertainment why would i bother with that because i could just watch a movie i didn't know mm-hmm. how much intention could go in i didn't know what could be explored i didn't know and it was like the whole world was new to me again and after that that's when i just dove head first and started reading everything I could get my hands on. And now I teach high school English writing and, and write books. I just fell in love in that moment. Well, piggybacking off that, speaking of teaching and your books, tell me about mm. this campaign. I think it's closed out, but you had a campaign going to get your poetry and books into local schools. Well, that was really, really cool. There's some cool opportunities that came up just with friends and old colleagues and old students. And my buddy's getting a PhD right now, a different friend, and he's talking about crowdfunding. So I've been having a lot of conversations about crowdfunding and the stars kind of aligned. And I was like, well, I have two books of poetry out right now, all about the mental health recovery process. It's all about finding hope. And then the next one's about, okay, now that I have hope again, how do I keep cultivating it? And it's all published chronologically. So these are literally just my musings as I'm trying to rebuild my brain. And then COVID started which right when I was okay again, like the whole world <laughs> fell apart. That was awesome. But the third collection that comes out this fall is called Rain Songs. This is kind of like this balance of like, okay, we got life happening, the good and the bad. How do we move forward and continue to cultivate hope in that? But I had a couple friends and then people that I've met who are other writers online, like loved a few of the poems here and there and have used them in their classrooms. And I went to do a book signing in Astoria where I used to teach and live last year. And one of my old students who actually teaches in the middle school there now, and one of my old colleagues, who's just a really great friend, still works at the high school. And they were like, Hey, I want to use your book in my classroom. And I was like, that's awesome. Can I come in and like hang out with you guys? And they were like, yeah. So like, we just started plotting and planning. And for me, like, 
this is what it's always been about. Like I wrote the books to help me and they've accomplished that. I feel uh, a fuller, more realized version of myself than I've ever been. And it's because of, you know, the artistic pursuit of writing these and investigating things and seeing what happens. And then I never really intended to put the books out, actually, especially the first one, Doom, because as I told you, like so much of Charlie's story is just me. Like, if you know me, you're like, oh, Craig grew up in Portland and he moved here to teach here. And like even the basement that Charlie stays in, that wasn't my place, but a friend of mine lived in that exact basement. Mm. So every place in that book is real. But uh, a couple other friends who were struggling with some stuff, like send them your poem or send them this. Like it was a couple of friends that actually encouraged me to start trying to get stuff out there. And then once that happened, it was almost like, okay, it was almost like a new mission. Like, okay, the books helped change me, but maybe they can be lights for other people. And then, you know, after these conversations with an old student and some friends last summer, my wife started encouraging and challenging me. Like, I work online right now since we moved back from Amsterdam, mostly to kind of be able to drop my kids off at school. It's just more flexible. I get to write still. And so I'm not actually in a classroom every single day anymore like I used to be. And I miss it. And so we started just brainstorming and dreaming. And I reached out to a few other people about like, hey, I've got these books. And, you know, if we could find ways to get you a class set, like, would you want to use it and, you know, teach analysis and writing, but also like, it's a foundation it's a complete avenue to have conversations about mental health openly in the classroom in a safe way. And they're like, oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, we need that right now. And everybody I've talked, it's been an interesting universally, every teacher or administrator I've spoken to are like, oh my gosh, we need that right now more than ever. And I'm like, oh, cool. And then there's another opportunity for me to be able to come into the classroom and actually work with teachers and work with kids again to tell the story and tell them where they came from, but then also just have fun and break down poetry. And I've picked up thousands of tricks down the road. Of, you know, I've taught at 1A schools in Oregon to like 6A schools, international schools. I've come up with a pretty solid repertoire of how to get kids interested in certain things. So, And then through my buddy who's getting his PhD, I was like, okay, 10 schools wanted these class sets. I was like, that's great, but schools can't afford it right now. Schools are getting butchered. They're losing money left and right. Worse than probably any time in history. It's pretty crazy. So I was like, oh, well, let's do Kickstarter. And this was scary because I wasn't sure if anybody was going to show up and actually support it. But as of this Tuesday, 12 complete class sets of the poetry books have been purchased to go into classrooms this fall. And I get to go into every single classroom. And I mean, just within the first two months of school, I get to basically interact with like two or 3,000 high school kids around nice. the state of Oregon. And create open conversations of mental health. I think the big thing for me right now is most people don't feel safe talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of shame in America when it comes to mental health and it doesn't exist in other Western countries. It's really interesting. Seems to be getting less though. Wouldn't you agree? It's definitely getting less. It's definitely yeah. getting less, but it was interesting during COVID it opened a lot. Mm -hmm. But since I moved home, it's been really interesting to watch. I feel like the conversation is just like rubber banding and getting smaller and smaller. Like when I go out and talk to people, like people get very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting to watch. So I think one of my hopes and almost like the mission of all of this for me is if I can be vulnerable and share my story, then it invites other people to be vulnerable and share theirs. And when you bring anything out into the light, like I've said earlier, if you say it out loud, sometimes you can see the reality or the truth of it or the lie in it. 
Mm. And I just think the more open we make that conversation and the less we shame people, the better it's going to get. I mean, there was a reason I didn't heal for 20 years because every time I tried to open my mouth about it, I would get shamed. So I stayed quiet and suffered in silence. And that was terrible because men aren't supposed to do that. <laughs> well, what is the life of Craig Randall like outside of writing? Ooh, I got a wife and two kids and we watch a lot Private of movies. Jet. Huh? <laughs> Private jet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, no, my friend with the tax bracket. <laughs> now we, we just, we live a, yeah, especially since we did get to live in uh, Amsterdam, which was a really cool experience. But in the last few years, we've just, we've been building our little life here in Corvallis, Oregon. And we try to get outdoors and, and play together and, and walk the dog. And I play music mostly by myself right now. But yeah, my oldest is getting to the point where he's like not going to want to spend any time with me anymore soon. So I'm just trying to soak up as many minutes as possible. We play a lot of yeah. FIFA together on the PS4 and just try to relax and enjoy it. And I read a lot. All right. Well, Craig, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Well... If you're interested, and thanks for listening. Currently have two novels out, The Doom that Came to Astoria and Part 2, The Dreams in the Pearl House. One takes place in Astoria. The second takes place in Portland, Oregon. Just, you know, dealing with what it looks like to try to heal. And then two collections of poetry with the third one coming out in October. You can find it on Amazon and most places that sell books. And I'm going to hopefully have it all up on my own personal website soon. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out on social media I always just love chatting with people and yeah, just remember there's hope yeah alright listeners at home all links are in the description and Craig thank you again for joining me thank you so much for having me Vince and thank you to everyone that tuned in if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a Bram Stoker award-winning author and actor. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. I've been losing myself again in your smoke when I praise you in. I'm breaking down, I'm spinning out.